Glad you guys are here. Just make yourself at home. Come on in. I know we have folks still, still coming in. Let me uh, say a prayer for us, and we'll jump into our lesson. Lord, thank you so much for this day. Thank you for bringing us together. Thank you, Father, for the country in which we live. Thank you for the freedoms that we have. We pray for the courage and the strength to be a creative minority. In other words, to, to impact this world for you. I pray that we're courageous enough and we understand the times and see it wisely. We do pray for our country in this time of change. So many different faces, so many elections, so many people, some celebrating, some not celebrating. I pray, Father, that you would unify our country, that you would be with our leaders, that you would turn their hearts toward you, and that they might seek your good in this country. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen. You guys look a little sleepy. Did you stay up late or something? <laughs> There's our number for questions. I got a text uh, from uh, my son, Cole, who runs all the adult ed, so he's actually my boss on Wednesday nights. And last night he said, well, this is looking like maybe you need to change your lesson a little bit for tomorrow. I said, no, the truth of the lesson is still the lesson, but I'll bet that, that we'll have a little different mood. Uh, a lot of shock and surprise. Uh, and speaking of which, this, this series is not about the election. This series is about us in our world, but I feel like I need to talk briefly about that just because we've tracked it so long. I can't decide if there's more surprise. And I say surprise. I don't say this in a partisan way, but you, just, you all saw the polls on this. And if anything, the polling industry took a beating this season, you know, in terms of a, a lack of accuracy on polling. And again, that's not a partisan statement. That's just... That was just kind of the general expectation, but I can't decide whether there are more people in America surprised or more people in the world surprised, you know, some of the world leaders. So it was, uh, it's kind of like you actually see this movement, by the way, just stepping back. This isn't our lesson, but I might as well do this because I know you all would really like to talk uh, politics because everybody's just kind of either really sad or really excited, which is typically the way elections go. And then I think things will settle in a little bit and we'll get busy about the business of uniting our country. But if you think about what happened with Brexit, uh, Britain's vote to exit the European Union, polls were dead wrong on that one too, by the way, which tells you something about the situation about polling in general in the world, not just in America, but political polling's taken a real hit. But they missed that. They missed the populist sentiment. As a matter of fact, when Laura and I were, we had, took a vacation there, a couple weeks ago, we talked to a lot of people, and it's very interesting. Their view on that is very populist, and what I mean by that is there's a strong sentiment there, as the polls showed and as our experience would show, in people saying, we'd like to get control back over our country. We feel like there are other impersonal forces who are controlling our destiny. You see that populist movement in Germany to some extent. You see it in France to some extent, and you saw it really strongly in America in this election. So I, I would simply put this in a perspective to say, you do see a movement back toward populism. In other words, tr people trying to take a little more control over their life. Again, I'm not, that's not a partisan statement about America. It's just more of a, I mean, front page of the New York Times this morning was, electorate sends a message to the establishment. In other words, it's a populist sentiment that's happening. I will remind you, though, that nothing has actually changed on the uh, trustworthiness numbers. Remember that? I told you that the do you find this candidate trustworthy? It was 33% for uh, Mr. Trump and 37% for Mrs. Clinton. And so you, you know, that those kinds of things haven't changed. So what you do see is actually populism 
It's not a, oh, I decided all of a sudden, yes, he really is better, or yes, she really is better than I thought. That part hasn't changed. What has changed is people wanting to feel like they can in some way send a message and get a little more control. So my message for us is, as Christians, as we dive back into our lesson, we dive back into the scriptures is, let's not get complacent about this. My message for those who feel like, wow, the world has ended, because people are really deeply disturbed on you know, both sides of this issue, we are a bit of a divided country, is simply don't be too alarmist about this. We as Christ followers do not you know, have to bob on the oceans of public opinion and populism. We can chart a little more uh, centered course than that, regardless of this. So in any case, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out in our country, and, I, and my prayer sincerely is that we become a more unified country and that we as Christ followers can have a bigger impact. And that's what I'd actually like to talk about in this lesson is, by the way, this is Russell Moore uh, talking about this election, and this article is actually pretty good, but this is interesting. He said, the sort of conservatism that many of us had hoped for, he's talking about this from a Christ follower point of view, which again, remember, the statistics, I'll just give you one of them again that I talked to you about in the first week. One of the premises of this is that Christ followers are a minority in our culture. Remember the statistics? 73% of Americans say, I am a Christian. But if you ask just one more level, if you say, okay, you're a Christian, do you attend church, let's say, once a month, and is your faith important in your life? That number, remember, goes down to 31% of Americans. So when I say Christ followers, and that's not exactly the highest bar in the world, is it? Go to church once a month and my faith actually is important in my life. That goes down to 31%. And so this is the context in which Russell Moore is interpreting this. He said, the sort of conservatism many of us had hoped for a multi-ethnic, constitutionally anchored, forward-looking conservatism has been replaced in the Republican Party because it's undergone sea changes in this uh, process by something else. On the one hand, there's a European-style ethno-nationalist populism. That's what I'm talking about in terms of what's happening broadly in the world. Opposed by an increasingly leftward progressive movement, the Democratic Party has also undergone significant changes in this. And, and neither one of these two parties will likely be what they have been in the past in future time, but an increasingly leftward progressive movement within the Democratic Party. In both of these movements, on both sides, moral concerns, certainly personal character and family stability questions are being marginalized. And that's true. We now have a politics of sexual revolution across the board, and that's also true. Those cultural trends are not likely to be completely re reversed. And what he's, his point is this, this means that conservative evangelicals are politically homeless, whether they know it or not. Now, that's not a frightening statement. That has been the premise of our series, is that we live in a different world than we used to live in as Christ followers, and we need to embrace the idea of being a minority. My contention to you is, is that's not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, our scriptures, which we're going to dive into tonight, the book of 2 Timothy and the New Testament in particular, really contemplates that situation. The church has been in this situation many times before, and not only been in it, not only endured it, but thrive in this environment. And that's our premise, is how does we thrive in a culture in which we are not the, the majority? We're not the dominant political force or even the dominant moral force in our country. Well, if you remember last time, we had a little action item. We talked about the power of the gospel. Well, there are three key ideas 
in 2 Timothy. The first is we have the power in the gospel to endure, to persevere. We talked about this great passage in Joshua 1.8. Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. The Lord your God is with you wherever you go. As we are about God's business, he is with us. God with us, Emmanuel, is a power in the gospel. And then a specific question, when you feel anxiety, fear, or frustration, and I realize that the, those who voted Republican probably don't feel that at the moment. Wait a week, you will. If you feel anxiety, I mean, something's going to go wrong in the culture. Feel anxiety, fear, or frustration, ask, how would I react if I trusted that God had a purpose in this? Because that's one of the foundational ideas, is that God does have a purpose in what happens, and God is, all of history moves to God's purposes throughout time. So, if there is a plan of God, there is an opportunity for God. Does that make sense? In other words, if we believe that our God has a plan, doesn't mean that everything goes well, it's just that he is a big enough God to take even evil things or difficult things or unjust things and bend them to his purposes of redemption. If he has a plan, then there will be opportunities for us to work and to act in that situation. And that's what I'd like to talk about, is how do we approach that? Four ideas. Number one, there are cracks in our culture. There are cracks in our culture. This is going to be kind of an idea level, and then I'll try to bring it down. But I want to give you the mental framework as Christ followers to understand the times, kind of the mental ideas to fit what is happening in the broad spectrum of our culture into. Number one, our culture pretends to be a perfectly paved over, nicely smoothed out concrete floor that says, look how shiny and smooth. We have an answer for everything. You can be a secular person. You do not have to have a religion. In fact, religion is a bad thing. We can fulfill the good life the full life, a flourishing human life can be obtained with a completely secular cultural way of looking at the world. That is what the culture pretends. The first point I'd like to make is this. There are cracks in that idea. It's like looking at your beautiful floor and realizing, wait a minute, the closer I look at it, this is not really stable. There are cracks in this thing. There are cracks in our culture. Let me give you a couple of uh, statistics. First of all, um, the number of atheists in our culture, as I'm talking about America now, in just the last few years has doubled. Now, it's still not even more than 10% of our population. Nevertheless, it has doubled. Uh, most atheists, about 70%, align with the Democratic uh, Party. Uh, about 56% would call themselves liberal, but they have doubled. Well, that begs an interesting question. If you have an atheistic point of view, and there's even more than the atheists who have a more secular, kind of a humanistic point of view, like I'm the center of the universe and I can chart the full life, how do you decide what's right and wrong? How, what do you bring to bear to the great questions of life? It turns out that 32% of atheists say, science informs my idea of what the good life is and how to choose right from wrong. But an even greater percentage, 44% say, my personal experience and just my common sense, how I feel about things, informs what's right and wrong. 
And that leads to the idea that there are pretty significant cracks in that culture because people don't agree with that, do they? There's no absolute truth. There's no this is right and this is wrong. It's a really sliding scale. That makes for some cracks in that worldview. You're going to see some tension. By the way, another interesting statistic, how there's, this is a great little idea to do a, a uh, survey and ask people, how do you feel just what you're feeling about different classes of people? And so they ask them, how do you feel about atheists? Only 41% of people feel good about atheists in general. So if you're an atheist in our audience, only 40% of Americans feel good about you. Right, 60% just, I don't know about you. Muslims, 40% feel good, feel favorably toward Muslims. Jews, 63%. Catholics, 62% of Americans have a very positive feeling. And evangelical Christians, 61%. So this atheistic worldview, this more culture, our cultural worldview, is going to have some cracks around the ideas of truth what's right, what's wrong, what constitutes behavior that leads to a flourishing human life, a full life, a good life. And you will see cracks in that. Here's an interesting statistic. In, uh, in our culture, which I've already kind of pointed out to you, is largely secular. In other words, 31% would be what I'm going to call Christ followers, at least meet that bar of go to church once a month and my faith actually matters. This is a Pew Research Center question that gets asked fairly frequently. This is from 2006. Do you think the future will be better than the present is really what it's asking. It's asking about will your children grow up to be better off than you are today. This isn't specifically financial. The numbers are uglier than this if you ask about finances. This is just in general, will the next generation find a better world than the one we have now? And 50% of Americans in 2006 said that the next generation would be worse off. Remember I told you, and I've been kind of tracking polls for you, but there's this poll where you ask Americans, do you think America's on the right track? And it's been hovering between 29 and 31%. In other words, only fewer than a third of Americans think we're on the right track. 50% think we'll be worse off. This was repeated later in 2014. It went up to 64% said, I believe the next generation will be worse off. So why am I telling you that? I'm telling you that is in a largely secular-minded culture that says I have the answers, most people who are participating in that culture are not optimistic about the future. My point is there are cracks in that view of the world. There are flaws, if you will. There are gaps in it. Even the people who, who are atheists, who are secular, do not have a general sense of optimism about having a full life. Does that make sense? That's an opportunity for Christians. The culture has a truth problem. Keller would say it this way, and this is, this is really true when you talk to people by and large, and polls tend to bear this out. He said strict secularism. What he means by secularism here is that you can figure out the way to live it and be happy in this world without anything supernatural. You don't need a God. You don't need faith. You don't need any of those things. You can figure out how to be happy in life and have a really good life. Strict secularism holds that people are only physical entities without souls. There's no afterlife. You don't have a soul. You just are what you are. That when your loved ones die, they're just gone. 
that sensations of love and beauty are neurological chemical events. In other words, it's a Darwinian kind of an idea. There's nothing magic about love. It's just the chemistry in, in your mind. That basically, right or wrong does not exist outside whatever we choose. Remember the atheist? He said 44%. I choose what's right and wrong based on what I think, just how I feel about it. In other words, there is no real right and wrong other than what you figure out. He said, these positions are at the very least deeply counterintuitive for nearly all people and large swaths of humanity will continue to simply reject them as impossible to believe. The culture idea of the good life has cracks in it and that crack is a truth problem. People who are secular aren't even convinced that, wait a minute, there's got to be more to the world than this. There has to be a better way. And we start to break it down and we start to look at the quality of people's lives. I showed you that people don't think the next generation is going to be better off. And you know what? They're actually right. People's intuition is correct. When you track all kinds of indices, people are experiencing a lesser quality of life. There are more addictions. There is more depression. There is more single-parent Families, in other words, a disintegration of healthy families. In whatever way you define it, uh, poverty levels go up in single-parent households, uh, child abuse goes up, violence goes up, poverty goes up, all kinds of bad things happen. In other words, the statistical trends tend to follow people's intuition. So I'm simply saying to you that we as Christ followers think, wow, all those people out there think they don't need religion. And I just want to establish this idea. There are cracks in that idea. That idea is not a smooth idea. That idea has some real holes in it, some real problems. So there are cracks in the cultural ideas. But meanwhile, despite the truth of that, Christ followers increasingly feel like outsiders in the culture. I mean, Christ followers typically are feeling like outsiders in the culture. We talked in our last series about, in a political sense, we feel like outsiders. In a moral sense, we feel like outsiders. I thought it was interesting on the Oklahoma state question. I bring this up just as an example. Again, I'm not trying to make a partisan statement. I'm going to make an observation. Is that uh, one of the statements had to do with removing an amendment in the Oklahoma Constitution that said, and I know there's an awful lot around this, but I just want to focus on this idea. Oklahoma Constitution, for example, says that basically you can't use any public funds for religious purposes in any sense. I know that that kind of started around the Ten Commandments monument, but step back from that for a minute. Think about that idea. In other words, what is that effectively saying? It's saying we are going to have a very strict separation of religious institutions from public institutions. We're going to have freedom, not just of religion, we have a freedom from religion, access to the public square and the public market. And that was upheld. In other words, that's still there. You get a lot of people saying, I still want religion out of this picture. And yet, with religion out of the picture, you have massive problems with that worldview. You have people who say the future won't be better. The statistics show that to be true. So I think Christ followers legitimately begin to feel more and more like outsiders. In the Bible, in the book of 1 Peter, this is a letter Peter wrote to believers in his culture, in his time, who were very much a minority in the Roman Empire. He said, I'm writing this to strangers in the world. Another translation of that world is, temporary residence in the world. 
In other words, his view of Christ followers was as a minority, and it was people who are indeed not in the centers of power in his world. And so the Bible contemplates Christ followers being in that position. It contemplates the idea that you may feel disruption in the culture. I think particularly in America, we perceive a change from a time when Judeo-Christian ethics, at least, were the dominant morality and social fabric of our country. And as the statistics begin to show us that it is not the dominant social fabric in our country anymore, people feel a sense of loss and displacement and disruption. And so I think even perhaps a little worse than the early church, we feel like we've come from somewhere to somewhere less, and you begin to feel pushed to the margins. We begin to feel like orphans in our own culture. And the Bible has a word for this. It has a concept for this. You'll see it all through the Bible. It's called exile. From the time of the Israelites in history being conquered and taken from their land and placed into a land that was not their own land, placed into a culture that was a godless culture, and yet they thrived in exile. And you'll see this idea of exile being applied. In other words, we live in a place that is not our native land. We live in a place that is not mirror godly values and godly beliefs. And so this idea of exile is not one we tend to think of as Christ followers, but it's a powerful idea that's really strongly runs through the New Testament. Let me show you, this is an interesting comment on Israel's experience of exile in the Old Testament. And several times, not just once. Exile, believe it or not, surprisingly, did not lead the Jews in the Old Testament to abandon their faith or to settle for despair or to retreat to a privatistic religion like just you stay out there, just let us huddle up in here. On the contrary, exile evoked the most brilliant literature, that's true, and the most daring theological articulation in the Old Testament. In other words, as surprising as it sounds, Israel was on mission better when she was in exile than when she was not in exile. It was not as pleasant for Israel to be in exile, but Israel was more effective, more articulate, more daring, more impactful when she was in exile. Well, that's an interesting idea. If you're sitting here as a minority, then you begin to think to yourself, typically we think of minorities as shrinking away. But there's this concept called a creative minority. How to be an impactful and empowered, a creative minority. If you look at the Old Testament, you see that's really what Israel did. Israel impacted the cultures in which they were exiled. As a minority, they had a greater impact on the world than they did as a majority. So this comes this idea of being a creative minority. In other words, acting as a minority on the culture in which we find ourselves. That's my point about Christians flourishing as a minority. This idea of being a creative minority. It involves endurance. That's the first thing that Paul talks about in 2 Timothy is the gospel empowers us to endure, persevere. But the second thing it involves is it gives us an energy to be a creative minority, acting, not retreating. Jesus said it this way. 
he contemplated this. This is Jesus on the last night before he is crucified. And he says, I will not leave you as orphans because he understood that in this world, he said, in this world you have trouble, but take heart, I've over, or you'll have trouble, take heart, I've overcome the world. He said, they hated me, they're going to hate you. You will be persecuted. He's, in other words, he's trying to say, look, you are going to be placed in the position of being exiles, of being a minority, but I want you to take heart because you, that is when you will be most powerful. But he wants to reassure them and us, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. There's that I will be with you idea again. Before long, the world will not see me anymore. Before long, your culture will not value God anymore. That's true. But you will see me because I live. That's true. Then you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I'm in my Father, you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and obeys them, he's the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him, and I will show myself to him. In other words, what Jesus is basically saying is you're going to feel like you've been orphaned, but the reality, the truth of this is, is that I am real and I am with you and that is what is going to power you. That is what's going to allow you to carry out God's purpose in the world. But that's not the way we've always tended to react to being in the minority, to being in exile. In fact, the church over the last several decades has actually acted in a little bit different way. Here's my, here's my point of view on this. If you look at the church, you're going to see that our society increasingly does not see a need for Jesus to solve its problems. It's more secular, meaning I can have, be happy, I can have the good life, I can solve my relationship problems, my financial problems, my personal problems, my emotional problems, the, you know, the fact that my shirts come back wrinkled. I can solve all the problems in my life, and I don't need Jesus to do it. The church has tended to want to be relevant and say, no, 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 really you do. Really, really you do. Let me tell you how Jesus solves your problems. And the church's emphasis has been on the pragmatic, therapeutic benefits of Christ to resolve life's issues. In other words, no, 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 you can't solve this by yourself. You're going to need a dose of Jesus to solve your problems. In other words, the church has embraced the secular culture and said, I want to be relevant. Tell me what your problem is. You guys ever see that movie, by the way? Because it's a movie reference, but I bet you've all seen it. Uh, Big Fat Greek Wedding. Great movie. If you haven't seen it, I, I really recommend it to you, especially the first one. Well, there's a, a Greek guy, the, the kind of the patriarch of the family is a Greek guy, and he basically has this little thing where he's, he's Greek, he speaks Greek, and he says, you give me any word, I tell you how it comes from the Greek. You know? And he makes up just some of the most ridiculous things, you know, that anything you give it to me comes from the Greek. Well, that's kind of the church. Says, hey, you give me your problem, I'm going to slap some Jesus on this and we're going to fix it. That kind of attempt to be relevant and emphasizing that Jesus is pragmatic, he's therapeutic, he can fix your problems, has robbed the gospel of its power and left the church in a competition. Now, you think about this. We're basically competing against science, technology, and psychotherapy to make sense of life. In other words, the culture goes, well, you think your Jesus will fix it? I don't know. Maybe Dr. Phil will do a better job, right? Maybe a pill you know, we'll do a better job, make me happy, cure my depression, whatever. Do you understand what I'm saying? Is if when we begin to embrace the culture and say, no, I want to be relevant to you, we basically put Jesus in the marketplace of cures for life. The gospel, and here's what we're missing, the crack in the culture is not because they don't have the right answers to solve their problems. Psychotherapy does solve some of your problems. 
Pills do fix some of our, our ailments. The gospel is not true because it works. It works because it's true. You see the, the significance there? We don't want to go to the culture and say, hey, this Jesus, he's real. You know why? Because he can fix your problems. Just give me a problem. He'll fix it for you. That's not the proposition of the gospel. That's not the teaching of the Bible. That's not what powers us as a creative minority. We actually want to say, you know what? This works because it's actually true. It actually represents reality. That's exploiting the crack in the culture because the culture doesn't have a medication problem. Always somebody on TV telling you how to solve your problems. If you've ever been in a bookstore lately, the self-help section is not getting smaller, right? There are all kinds of people that will try to tell you how to fix your problems. The problem that the culture has is a truth problem. Understand? Those things aren't true. That's why people, you know, honestly, if, this, if my, what I'm telling you was not true, there would only be one self-help book. If self-help books worked, why are there so many? I mean, I thought that. Last time in Barnes & Noble, I thought, you've now got three entire racks of self-help books. And I'm just cynical enough to go, wait a minute. If these worked, why are there so many? Right? Because the culture has a truth problem. Those things don't really mesh with reality. That's why people say, I'm not optimistic that the next generation's problems will be less than mine. I'm not optimistic that we're on the right track. The statistics don't show that people are actually getting happier. They're not, statistically. You may say, well, I am, good for you. But statistically, Americans are not getting happier. They're not getting a fuller life. The culture has a truth problem. Relevance is not the key for us to thrive. Truth is the key for us to thrive. And that's exactly what you see in 2 Timothy. This is the second thing Paul talks about. He says there's power in the gospel for you to endure. That in other words, you can be a creative minority, not just a hunkered down minority. The truth of the gospel is the foundation of it. It's not the, oh, Jesus can fix your problems better than science, or Jesus can fix your problems better than psychotherapy. It's the fact that actually this is true. That is the second key. Watch what uh, Paul says. This is 2 Timothy. First chapter to the beginning of chapter 2 talks about endurance. He picks up in chapter 2 and he says this, Do your best, Timothy. Present yourself to God as one who's approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. He doesn't say the word of cure, the word of getting rich. The, the, in other words, he says the word of truth. Handle this word of truth that you've been entrusted with. Look at this. In fact, everyone, this chapter 3 goes on, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He said it's just a matter of time. While evildoers and imposters will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned. What is that? The truth of the gospel. He said continue in what you have learned and become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. All scripture is God-breathed, inspired, literally inspired, and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. What's he saying? He says the basis for what you're, what you're going to hold on to is the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ. Then finally, chapter 4. 
in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus who will judge the living and the dead. He's making a truth claim there. He says, there's life after death. Jesus is real. He died, he rose, he lives, he will return. There's a truth. That is the good news of Jesus Christ, by the way. And he has made a way for us to be free of our sins. He said that truth is, is what he's talking about. And in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach that word. Tell that story. That is the force that binds us into the minority that we are. We're not a minority culturally. They say, oh, well, I look around. Everybody kind of looks like me. We're all Americans. We were all you know, kind of born in rural America, and we have the same values and the same histories. We don't as Christ followers. They're Christ followers of every nationality, every ethnicity, every cultural background. That's not what binds Christ followers together. It's not our ethnicity. It's not our cultural things. It's not the fact that we all happen to go to church in this place or we live in Oklahoma City. What binds us together is the word of truth. He said, that's what's going to bond you together and give you your identity as a minority. Sometimes we're, we're tempted to trade our identity off. We kind of want to conflate being Christian in America with being Republican in America. Sometimes we want to put this Christian and American together. We want to put Christian with a lot of things, and Paul says the only thing you can really put Christian with, the only thing that really binds Christians together is the word of truth. He said, preach that word. Be prepared, correct, rebuke, encourage with great patience and careful instruction. He said, the time's going to come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. What does that mean? People will not want to hear the truth. And at that point, you will see fragmentation. You'll see exile. That's exactly what we experience. He said, they won't put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they'll gather around them a number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Turn on cable TV, that's what it is. Go to the self-help section, that's exactly what it is. Tell me what I want to hear. Solve my problems in a way that doesn't have anything to do with God. Accountability, love, grace. He said, they'll turn their ears away from the truth and they'll turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in every situation, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. What 2 Timothy is saying is a second key for us to be that kind of powerful, impactful minority to keep our identity intact is to be committed to the truth of the gospel. Let me pause there and see what questions you have. I know I'm going through a lot here. I want you to think there are cracks in this culture and even though we feel like outsiders, we feel like we're in exile, what binds us together and makes us thrive is the truth of the gospel. So let me pause there. Questions? Um, do you think we should be injecting Christianity into the political sphere, or should we be taking it to humanity separately in spite of what goes on in politics? I'm going to suggest to you in the next point that we should bloom in all the cracks of the culture. And politics is one of the cracks of the culture. I think that we need to be speaking into the political structures of our world like we speak into, there are big cracks in the media world. Our media has a truth problem. And there's a place to flourish, right? We should speak into, well, yeah, okay, that was a, our media definitely has a truth problem. but. That's, that's kind of understatement of the century, wasn't it? But in other words, there are all aspects. There are cracks in the culture, and I think we should bloom in all of them. So I think it's not an either or, it's a both and. We should bloom wherever we can take the truth. 
Politics could use a dose of truth. So could the media, so could entertainment, so could healthcare, so could the legal profession. In other words, everything that you are involved in, you take truth into those cracks. It's easier to be bold and speak the truth when you do not fear loss. Christ followers in Western cultures feel loss when they become bold and speak the truth. Think about Tim Tebow. How do we overcome this? Yes, we're going we're gonna to have two things put together here. And Jesus was very upfront about this. He didn't say that it would always be safe to speak the truth. But I want, I want to give you this analogy. Where is the church growing the fastest in the world today? There are two basic places. One is South America uh, with a fairly charismatic version of Christianity. In other words, a real spirit-infused version of Christianity. And just set that aside whether doctrinally you agree with it or not. But bottom line, Christianity is flourishing there. The other place is where it's oppressed in North Korea and in China. China, the church in China has exploded and it is definitely not okay to boldly speak the truth. So they don't. They don't go out and stand on the street corner and say, come on and arrest me, I'm gonna speak the truth. They find other ways to speak the truth, to show the truth, to live the truth. And I'm gonna show you a good one in America. But that is true. There is a cost to speaking the truth. And Jesus never pretended otherwise. He said, Remember this passage we just looked at a moment ago? Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ is going to find some resistance. So the scripture is not trying to kid us about that. We need to be creative, and I'm going to show you a way to be a creative minority in a minute, a practical way to speak truth that you might not think is speaking truth. But that's a good question. That's a good point. How do you engage an atheist when they reject the basis for our faith? It seems like all we can do at that point is pray for God to change their hearts. Yes, I think so. I mean, apologetics has its place. In other words, reasoning with people. I think that's a good thing. I just don't think it's the main thing in the sense that not that some people really are, have integrity of thought and really will engage in that dialogue. I, my, my experience has been that most people don't become Christians because they've been convinced intellectually. Now that does remove some barriers for people. There are more powerful ways. Somehow or other, people typically are open to this when they fall into the one of the cracks of the culture. And everybody's going to fall into the cracks of the culture sooner or later. That's where we typically have an opportunity. So it's sort of like one of those things of uh, you can, uh, I'm trying to think the old sales thing. It says, you know, you can try to dress a pig up and put some lipstick on it and make it look really good. But all that really happens is the pig gets frustrated and you get mad. You know, that's kind of the way sometimes talk, trying to reason people or argue people into seeing your point of view is, that's not a productive thing. There are better ways to go about that. And prayer is definitely one of them. Jesus said, no one can come to me unless my father draws him to me. In other words, it's not up to us. Now, don't misunderstand me. We have a mission to go speak, to love, to give, forgive, compassion. Don't misunderstand me. We, God has given us a part to play, but I don't want you to ever feel like, oh, no, it's all on me to convince this atheist to become Christian. It's not all on us. It's God who's going to do that, God who's going to empower us. So good question. Okay, well, let's keep going here. This is interesting because if that's the case, if the truth of the gospel is what binds us together, empowers us to be a powerful, creative minority, 
in a culture that has a truth problem, so truth is what binds us, what does that imply for the church? I've already told you, quit trying to go kiss up to the culture and say, no, really, I've got better answers than technology. Well, that's probably true in a deeper sense, but that's not the way we want to approach it. The value that we have is we have the truth and the culture has a real truth problem. What does that mean for the church? Stanley Hauerwas, is Christian ethicist, thinks a lot around this kind of question. And here's a couple of quotes that give you an interesting insight. The church does not exist to pro provide an ethos for democracy or any other form of social organization. In other words, the church is not here to prop up a democratic government, uh, a monarchy, anything. That is not its primary purpose. It is not here to validate some kind of political system but it stands as a political alternative to every nation, witnessing to the kind of social life possible for those who have been formed by the story of Christ. I want that to sink in, because if the culture has cracks in it, it's got a problem with truth. It just isn't entirely true, and people run into that in a very painful way. If what binds us together as a minority and makes us impactful is indeed the truth of the gospel, what does that then mean about us as a church? It means that we cannot think of ourselves as a, basically someone who's trying to reform the political system, someone who's trying to fix the justice system. We will do those things, but that is not our mission. He says what we're really doing is we're going to show you another way to live, an alternative that is possible for those who actually believe the story of Christ is true. What would it look like if you lived like you believed that what Jesus Christ said was true? He goes on to say this. The first task of Christian social ethics, not the only, but the overriding first task, is not to make the world better or to make it more just. In other words, it's not to be relevant. Say, oh, wait, by the way, you've got a criminal justice problem. I think Jesus can fix that for you. Jesus can fix that problem. He says, but that is not our reason for existence. He says, but to help Christian people form their community consistent with their conviction that the story of Christ is a truthful account of our existence. Yeah, this fits together. He says, if the gospel is true, then the power of the church is to live like we believe that is true and provide a different social example to the world an alternative way of living, not a, I'm here to reform your government, I'm here to show you something completely different. Does that make sense? The church's mission is to live, as, our, as is ours personally, to live like we believe that the account of Jesus Christ is true. That is what forming our faith looks like. So, what does that then mean for us? Communities of faith bloom in the cracks of the culture. The culture has a truth problem. They're big cracks. They're things that people are going to fall into. I mean, if, if, the, if the secular solution is so good, why is the world so bad? Why are people so discouraged? Because there are cracks. There are truth problem here. We are a community that is formed around the truth of Jesus Christ. We believe that what he said was true, who he, he is, who he says he is, he will do what he says he will do, and we will live as followers of Jesus Christ, emulating him. We become communities of faith, and we begin to bloom everywhere there's a truth problem in this culture. 
everywhere there's a bunch of concrete and nothing green, nothing good to be seen, that is where we bloom. That is where people notice, oh my goodness, I've got a crack here and they've got an oasis. I look at you and I say, you, 64% of you do not have a pessimistic view of the future. 82% of you are not in single parent households. There are not people amongst you who are just completely marginalized and cast out. Wait a minute, you guys look like an oasis in the midst of a culture that's failing to serve those people. Where are the cracks? Keller says this, well said. There are two good answers to the question of why religion continues to persist and grow. And the first one is this, we'll talk about the second one next time because Paul is gonna talk about the second one next time. One explanation is that many people find secular reason to have things missing from it that are necessary to live life well. I said that by saying everybody that you know falls into a crack in this culture sooner or later. Everybody gets marginalized, everybody has depression, everybody has to try to figure out how to deal with death or loss or insecurity or fear or anxiety. They're all gonna fall into one of these cracks and they're gonna find themselves sitting there and they're gonna realize there's something missing from this view of the world. I can't be happy, I can't live life well. The you may say, oh, I know a guy, he's pretty happy. Wait, because statistically, Americans are not getting happier because the culture has a truth problem. The church doesn't have a truth problem. The church just needs to live out its truthfulness and be that alternative way of life. Communities of faith, and what I mean by communities of faith are people living out the truth. You get the culture on the left that's a weedy way to live. It's messy, it's tangled, it's got brambles. If you turn around and look at Christians and you see true lawn lawn right there, in other words, I see a life that looks different. Wait a minute, you have trouble in your life like I have trouble in my life, but you look like the yard on the right and my life is a mess. Do you remember the video that we saw in our worship this week? A lady in our congregation who found out literally in the course of an afternoon that she had stage four cancer. Did you hear her? Did you hear the hope? The thing that, you know what? I know God's got a plan in this. Is this desirable? No, but you know what? I trust God. I'm gonna live like I believe this truth. She has the same challenge in life that someone else would have. What makes it different? She's bound together by truth. Other people are trying to cope with this with a flawed and cracked view of the world. Is that starting to make sense? You see this in the early church too. It says this, what if ordinary ministry and Christian practice offers a very rare opportunity in our day, a genuine encounter and engagement with real people in a world where friends are added with a button and the beautiful blank faces of stock photography stares out at us, church and faith offer us true face-to-face -face encounters. In other words, here we are doing life with each other, bound together by the truth of the account of Jesus Christ and modeling a radically different way to approach life. People look at the church and they say, yeah, well, I see the church people, they're no happier than anybody else. I know, because 73% of Americans say they're Christian and they're not. Christ followers are those of us who are committed to following Christ to live it out like it's true, and we begin to, we as communities, begin to look very, very different. 
Look at this, Acts 2.42, Acts chapter 4. This is the people in the book of Acts, in the original, begin to live out the truth of the gospel like what Jesus said was true. They gave selflessly, they cared relentlessly, they spent time together, they lived out the truth of their faith. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to knowing what truth is, fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that all there were no needy people among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, bought the money, put it at the apostles' feet, it was distributed. There were no needy people in a lot of ways. That, that powerful woman you saw on that video, she's not needy because she has all of us to support her in the truth and walk with her. The culture doesn't have that. That's one of the real cracks in the culture. There's not that real, genuine community of people who care as much about each other as they do about themselves. That is a powerful witness. We show the truth of the gospel by living out our faith together. So we had a great question about, should I be out there shouting this from the rooftops? There are people who are called to be evangelists, who are called to engage the culture in apologetics, who are called to engage the culture by preaching it to the world. There are those who are called to go to jail for what they believe. God brings us into a lot of places, but the fundamental task is for us to form a community of faith that demonstrates this is what it looks like when you live like this is true. And it's going to look like an oasis in the midst of a desolate world. That's how the church thrived. That's what Paul's telling the church to do in 2 Timothy. Hold on to the truth, live like you believe it, and watch what God will do. That's the most powerful way to speak the truth into the culture, is to live like we believe it. Now, that's a little counterintuitive, isn't it? Because we tend to think about them. In other words, I need the government to change. I need the Supreme Court to change. Those are good things. Don't misunderstand me. Those are good things. They're not ultimate things. What do we really need? We need each other living out the truth of the gospel together. That's what we need. And you'll see a lot more smiles on people's faces. When you walk into our Sunday school classes, our community, and this isn't just this body of believers. This is true all over the world. There are people getting together in China, and it's illegal to get together, and they're in there smiling at each other, knowing we are here living out the truth of the gospel. We love each other, and we are optimistic about the future. Our God has a plan, and we're going to be part of that plan. There is a, that is a completely different worldview. But you walk into these communities of faith here in this church, you're going to see that. And that is powerful. This church grows. And I'm not bragging about this church. I'm going to brag on God. This church grows, meaning really brings people in who decide, I want to follow Jesus Christ. I am committed to becoming like Jesus Christ. This church grows because that's happening. It doesn't grow because of our advertising. It doesn't grow because, oh, we have great preachers and teachers. Oh, those, that's true. Marty's a great preacher, but he'd be the first to tell you, no, that's not what actually transforms this. It's us living out the truth of what we believe and people saying, you know what? This way of life doesn't have the answers to life. The way you live does. So what does that mean for you? Well, it means it's all on you. I mean, you're going to have to do this, right? Seriously, what that means is, in a practical sense, we can be very proactive. We don't have to sit here and wait, oh, if only 
Donald Trump does what he's supposed to do. Oh, if only Britain gets out of the European Union. Oh, if only, if only, if only. You can now act. You can be a creative minority by being part of one of these communities. Be in a Sunday school class and really get invested in people's lives. Be in a community group. Be in a centered group. Worship together. Care about each other. In other words, form a community that lives out the truth of the gospel. That's what we have to do. And we don't need anybody's help to do that. That's why the church thrives in adversity, because the church is built on the truth and doesn't need external forces to thrive. Make sense? The truth of the gospel blossoms in the cracks of our culture. And don't ever kid yourself that our culture has its act together. You don't have to look at very many statistics to realize. My neighbor acts like he's happy. If you've been in a church very long, you realize you go behind closed doors and you find a lot of cracks in people's worldview. You find a lot of cracks in their lives. And you begin to model what it looks like to live out the truth of the gospel. You're going to find people get really, really interested in that because they're all going to fall into a crack sooner or later. So that's our action step for this week is think about this. Act on this. Are you part of one of those communities? That's why as a church we do what we do. We don't do Sunday school. We don't do community groups. We don't do centered. We don't do programs just to do programs. We do it to give you an opportunity to find one of those real communities of faith. Find one of those communities of faith. Be a part of one of those communities of faith and watch how it not only transforms our lives, the truth of the gospel transforms our lives. Watch what it does to the people that you're around when they see the changes in you. So that's your assignment this week. Go live like you believe that the gospel is true and watch what God does with that. You, your life will not only blossom, everybody around you will begin to thirst for the oasis of life that you have. So, get involved in a community. Be that community. Next, the final key. final key that Paul wants to talk about is the gospel gives us the power to endure. Our, our, God, our God has a plan in every circumstance. We are never in despair. The truth of the gospel, if we will live out that truth, that is power. It's, we don't need political power. We don't need to be in a majority. The power is living out the truth of the gospel. And the third key has to do with an idea called transcendence or meaning. And that's what we'll talk about next time. But this week, smile. Nobody believes you're living out the truth of the gospel if you're frowning, okay? Democrat or Republican, smile either way. I'll see you guys next week.